Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week, we had angels and shepherds proclaiming the arrival of the newborn king. We had good news of great joy. In this week's episode, we are covering the first 41 days of the life of Jesus. Now, as you're listening to this, you may think, well, that's oddly specific. You're going to see what I mean soon enough. We're going to pick back up in verse 21. Quote, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. End quote. Leviticus 12 commands all the people of Israel to circumcise their babies on the eighth day. At that time, Mary and Joseph obeyed the word from the Lord, sent through Gabriel, and named the baby boy Jesus. It doesn't appear that they had quite the fanfare that Zechariah and Elizabeth had. So there weren't any busybodies trying to name the, the child. There was no one saying, there's no one named Jesus in your family. And hopefully there weren't busybodies simply because they were out of town. Hopefully it wasn't because of any suspicion about this family. Verse 22 and following, quote, And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons, end quote. Verse 22 is actually how we know we are on day 41 of the life of Jesus. Again, referencing Leviticus 12, we are told the purification period is 33 days after the child is circumcised. You don't need to break out your calculator. I got you covered. 33 plus 8 equals 41. We are on the 41st day of the life of Jesus. It's going to be a busy day and an eventful day for this young family. Mary and Joseph are being faithful, and they're doing exactly what the law tells them to do. They are there to make a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and a sin offering. Leviticus 12 actually specifies that they were supposed to bring a lamb for the burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for the sin offering. But there is an exception to this rule, as we saw in verse 24, where it said a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons. Leviticus 12 says that if this family does not have the means to sacrifice a lamb, they can sacrifice a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That tells us the financial place Mary and Joseph are in. They don't have much money. And really, they're probably living at or below the poverty line at this point. When Jesus is about two years old, the Father would provide extra provision for them through the gifts of the Magi, the wise men. Remember, they would bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All three are very valuable gifts that could help out financially. But remember, we're on day 41, not year two. You can really see here that God doesn't show favoritism. Money, status, these are things that do not impress God one bit. Remember what the Lord says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, quote, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, end quote. He looked on the heart of Mary and Joseph, and that mattered infinitely more than their socioeconomic status. I think it's too easy for us to look on the outside to see what kind of car someone drives, what kind of house they have, what kind of clothes that they wear, what kind of phone that they carry, and we make assumptions about them. 
It can be easy for us to come up with judgments that tell us that the more someone has going for them, whether that's financially or physically or socially, the more favored they are by God. We're going to see in a moment with a man named Simeon that God delights in blessing his people. But his greatest blessing has nothing to do with silver or gold or keeping up with the Joneses. The greatest blessings are always invitations to a closer walk with the Lord, to know him better, to experience him in a fresh way, or to experience him in a deeper way. During the peak of COVID, there was a clip going around on Twitter of a church having a time of prayer for their city. Now, they prayed about a lot of things, but the one thing that got the most attention is that they prayed that their city would repent from the sin of poverty. Now, this is a well-known church. If I said the name of the church, you'd probably know, which is why I'm not going to say the name of the church. But it is obviously a ridiculous prayer. Now, are there sinful behaviors and attitudes that could lead to poverty? Absolutely. But are there more ways to end up in poverty than sinful behaviors and attitude? Definitely. We live in a broken and unjust world. And side note, but let's remember, this is important here. There are definitely also sinful behaviors and attitudes that could lead to being very wealthy. It's not a one-way street on this. If anyone tries to call poverty a sin, remember, our sinless Savior was born into poverty. If anyone tries to speak condescendingly of those in poverty, remember, our righteous king made his grand entrance into this world through an impoverished family. Remember, one more time, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, quote, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, end quote. So as the old adage goes, let's not judge a book by its cover. Now we're going to continue this eventful day in the life of this young family with verse 25. Quote, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. End quote. Simeon was a really good guy. He did his best to follow and obey the Lord. He was excited about what God was going to do through his people and for his people. There are not many people in this day, referring to Simeon's day, that the Bible points out that the Holy Spirit was upon him. So from this, we can see that Simeon was a, a righteous man who walked with the Lord and the Lord walked with him. God had revealed to Simeon that Simeon would live long enough to see the Messiah, to see the one who would bring salvation, to see the Savior. Then one day, the Holy Spirit nudges Simeon, almost like God is saying, hey buddy, I want to show you something today. Head on over to the temple. And when Simeon did just that, when his eyes fell on Jesus, he knew this is what God was up to. This is the one who would save us from our sins. To see Jesus is to see salvation. He takes Jesus up in his arms and he worships the Lord. He essentially says, now that I have seen this, I can die in peace. Simeon is so excited. Doesn't this tell us something really cool about the heart of God? Don't you know that it gave the Father great 
pleasure to bless his servant Simeon like this. Let's reread what he spoke over Jesus, starting in verse 29. Quote, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence for all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. End quote. We see something else that's really cool about the heart of God. We see the heart of God is for all people. He has made a way for salvation, not just for Israel, but also for the Gentiles too. Since Gentiles simply means not Jewish, Simeon covers all the categories here, right? There are the Jewish and the not Jewish. Everyone fits in one of those two categories. So remember what God told Abraham way back, Genesis 22, verse 18, quote, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, end quote. The blessing of the offspring, the blessing of the Messiah, the blessing of Jesus was never just going to be for Israel. Israel was included, but it wasn't just about Israel. He was for all the nations of the earth. It was always God's plan to save the world, not just Israel. I mean, you even think about the first sentence in John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world, not just for God so loved Israel, for God so loved the world. In the book of Revelation, we get to see this beautiful window that's opened up for us. And we see this plan, this light for revelation to the Gentiles, as Simeon put it. It works. It really works. When we look at the end of history, at the end of the age, we will see all of this works. Look what Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 10 say. Quote, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. End quote. In this passage, we see that members of every nation, every tribe, people, and language will one day be around the throne of Jesus, and they will be worshiping him together. When Simeon was speaking over Jesus, he was doing so under the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pick back up in verse 33. Quote, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Quote. There's a lot of marveling going on in the book of Luke so far. There is no doubt that the life and ministry of Jesus shook up Jerusalem, and shook up the world for that matter. Lowly fishermen became some of the most important men in history. The most powerful religious leaders in the nation found themselves opposing God. Truly, many did rise, and many did fall. Verse 35 has a phrase in parentheses. It says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. John 19 records that Mary was among those who had the courage to be at the cross of Jesus. She saw him die. For Mary, the mother of Jesus, I have no doubt that moment felt like a sword piercing her own soul. Let's pick back up with a prophetess named Anna in verse 36. Quote, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, end quote. So Anna is a prophetess. 
she continues a theme that we've seen in Luke so far. That is that prophecy has made its return to God's people like it did in the Old Testament. God is now speaking through faithful people. There are several prophetesses, say that three times fast, in the Old Testament. There's Miriam, the sister of Moses in Exodus 15. There's Deborah, the judge in Judges 4.4. There's Huldah in 2 Kings 22. And then there's Noadiah in Nehemiah 6.14, though Noadiah may not be as friendly as the other ones. Back to Anna. Anna is another example of Luke emphasizing those in the story of Jesus that most wouldn't include. A woman who is a widow, advanced in years, with no mention of children, is not a voice many of that day would elevate. But in the story of Jesus... All who believe are exalted and included. Most would look at Anna's story and call it tragic. When she was young, likely around 16, she was married. She lived with her husband for seven years. That would put her widowed around the age of 23. Different Bible translations translate this next part differently. Some translate it that she was a widow until 84, which just means that she was 84 when she met Jesus on this day. And then some translations say that she was a widow for 84 years, which would put her around 107 at this moment. So whether she was 84 and widowed for six decades, or 107 and widowed for eight decades, she was a widow for a long, long time. So how did she spend her time? Well, it says that she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Then when she sees Jesus, the prophetess becomes an evangelist, and she tells everyone that would listen, the King, the Messiah, the Savior is here. When we read our Bibles, it's always important to look for how we can apply the passage that we're reading. So one of the questions I like to ask is, what does this teach us about following Jesus? Now, in the passage, there could be a sin to avoid. There could be an example to follow. There could be an example to stay away from. There could be a promise to claim. In this passage, what we see very clearly is that Anna is a wonderful example for us to follow. She could have been so bitter towards God. She could have dwelled on how life wasn't fair, how it wasn't right that she didn't get the life that her friends got or that her family members did. We've all had dreams. We've all had things that we have wanted. And can we really say like Anna did, Lord, I lay this at your feet. Do with my life as you will. I mean, that kind of talk sounds a lot more like take up your cross and follow me than it does just trying to fit God into our life. You see, Anna was all in. She was not bitter or angry towards God. She leaned into God. She stayed in the temple, the place of worship. She spent her time worshiping God, fasting, praying. Instead of running God or accusing God of some kind of misdeed in her life, she leaned into God all the more. In Anna, we see a woman who chose God over bitterness. She centered her life around him, and God was enough for her. She lived in a way that proves that God is enough, even if he doesn't give her exactly what she wanted. That if everything else was subtracted from her life, God would be sufficient. Her life proves that God was her greatest treasure. Where many would sink into an ocean of anger, of bitterness, she rested in the refuge that is her God. God really changed everything for her. He was her rock in tragedy, one that meant more to her than we could ever truly know. You see, one thing we know about Anna 
is that her eyes were looking forward to what God was going to do. Both Simeon and Anna cared more about the plans of God than the plans of man, even more than their own plans. They cared more about what God was up to than they cared about anything else that was going on. Their life, their testimony, really begs the question for us modern readers. What's holding me back from totally surrendering to God? What do I need to lay down before the Lord and say, God, you can have this. You can have every bit of it. It's too easy to give the Lord conditions. As in, Lord, you can have everything except for fill in the blank. It is too easy to invite God into the house of your life and say, God, you can have this room, you can have this room, you can have this room, but stay out of that closet. It is too easy to try to put God in a box, to give him boundaries. But the thing is, God loves you so much. God wants every room in your house. He wants all of you, not part of it. He's not going to be satisfied with parts of your life. He wants you. And that means every square inch. In Philippians 3, Paul lists out his achievements. He's talking about the things that meant the most to him before he met Jesus. He's talking about the stuff that he has put his identity in, his self-worth in. If you were to ask Paul who he is before he met Jesus, he would likely say something like this. Philippians 3, starting in verse 4, quote, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, end quote. He's basically saying, if anyone thinks they're religious, he's like, I got you beat. If anyone thinks they love the law of the Lord, he's like, I love it more. But then Paul stacks up the worth of all those identity-building achievements that meant everything to him at one point. He stacks it all up against Jesus. And in verses 7 and 8, Paul says this, quote, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, end quote. It's not just that Jesus was more valuable to Paul than his prior achievements. It's that Jesus was so much more that there is no comparison. The ESV calls the former things rubbish, but other translations translate it as dung, as in poo. Jesus is worth everything. So when you stack everything else against Jesus, you have one side where there's this amazing, beautiful, incredible treasure, and on the other side, you have dung. So when life doesn't go our way, we do not have to sink in anger or bitterness because we know we've still got the greatest treasure. We've still got God himself. As Romans 8, 38 and 39 tell us, quote, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. Last two verses of the day, verses 39 and 40, quote, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. End quote. So day 41 in the life of Jesus was a very busy day, but it has now come to a close. They went home. Since Luke doesn't mention the visit from the wise men or Joseph and Mary taking Jesus and fleeing to Egypt as Matthew describes, our next glimpse into the life of Jesus will show up when Jesus is 12 years old. We'll look at that next week. Over those years, Jesus would grow strong, no doubt physically strong from working with Joseph the carpenter, but he would also be filled with wisdom, which had more to do with his heavenly father. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.